You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey there, it's Blasco, and this is a new level. Welcome to episode 10. My guest today is Mike Shea. Mike is the founder of Alternative Press Magazine. AP is one of the longest lasting music publications in America and has been instrumental in launching the careers of artists such as Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson to Korn and Rob Zombie to Fall Out Boy to My Chemical Romance and the list goes on. He is the executive producer for the AP Music Awards and hosts his own podcast for AP called Backstage Pass. Mike is a super awesome dude, a friend and a colleague, and I am super stoked he took the time to chat with me today. So Mike, thank you, my friend. Oh, sure. Of course. Anytime. So AP has been around for as long as I can remember, right? And it's, and it's like, it's like, it's like this massive thing. Like I'm trying to put it in perspective of like, here's me as a kid seeing AP, this giant you know, monster publication with all of the coolest bands ever on, on the cover. Right. And then, and then it's, and then it's kind of cool. Like over time, like I get more involved in the business. I get deeper. We, you know, we cross paths and it's like, it's, it's kind of a cool perspective. Like I don't have a question here, but it's just cool of like meeting people over time whenever like the initial presentation is so massive. And then it's, it's kind of cool whenever you can peel back the curtain, you know, sort of like in the Wizard of Oz and meet you, the wizard behind AP and just be like, oh, cool. Like, you know, here we are. I think it was like one time like years ago, like I just showed up on your doorstep and like, you know, snow ridden Cleveland and was just like, hey, like let's hang out. And you gave me a tour and then like you walk in and all the magazine covers are everywhere. It's just like, like I said, I don't have a question. I just thought it was cool. Just like it kind of it finally get to meet you and, and see the behind the scenes of, you know, something that has been so like important in my life, you know? Oh, that's awesome. That's really great to hear. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's been a, uh, it's been a really crazy journey. There's no doubt about it all, all along. Now, how long, how long has AP been around? Like when, when was 33 years? It's 33 years this June 6th. So June 6th, 1985 was the day we handed out the first issue um, at a small little dive punk bar called the Cleveland Underground that we used to be here in the east side of the flats. Uh, no, well, technically right in the flats. And um, yeah, it's been a, and I was sick that day. I couldn't hand it out. I had a, I was home with a really bad cold or something like that. So one of the dudes that was writing for us or wrote a couple record reviews for us um, went to the show that night and it was just some local bands. And I think one band from Canada was playing and that was like a big deal. And uh, so it was a hardcore show and you know, it's 1985. So you're not getting text messages, you know, uh, immediately saying, Hey, everybody's loving this thing or whatever. So, so this writer didn't call anybody and we tried to get a hold of him to find out like what happened the night before. And he was passed out. He didn't wake up till the middle of the afternoon. And that's when we found out that he literally handed out all 1000 copies of this fanzine and everybody was totally digging it. And they, they, you know, he just, he's like, I got rid of them one night. We thought we were going to take like two weeks to get rid of all of them. And it, it wasn't that case at all. So, <laughs> uh, 
very long time ago. So, okay, so back it up. Tell us how you got started in the business. Um, so I was lucky enough to get like a bunch of mentors, you know, it's like, I know that's what you do now. You try and mentor people. And, um, so I was the editor of the high school newspaper and I was the editor of the yearbook and, uh, my senior years, but I was kind of a rebellious type. So during that period, uh, the Cleveland poets league, which was like a nonprofit back then, uh, pulled together resources and started putting out a free, uh, student-run local, basically it was an alternative, uh, not even weekly, it was bi-monthly. And um, so they had students from local high schools all over the area here write for them. And I eventually ended up being the entertainment editor for that. Um, and so the, your big thing was going around to the local record uh, wholesalers here, or the regional branch offices, I should say. So you went to Warner Electra Atlantic, uh, and you go to Capitol Records and so forth. And uh, the, at the time, you know, you, you get to meet the regional rep, and they gave you like 25 vinyl records of new records uh, that you could go home and review or hand out for record reviews for this freebie. So, um, but very quickly, I was introduced to Jane Scott, who was the Cleveland. Uh, Plain Dealers uh, music critic, and she had been there going way back to Elvis and the Beatles. She'd interviewed anybody and everybody, and she's very famous in Cleveland as a music critic. She was actually, I think, the first female music critic in the United States. So I met her in kind of like her highlight uh, of of her career, and uh, or twilight, I should say. And so she gave me some you know, she, I kind of understudied and he shadowed her while she went around town and did some interviews with some local stuff and interviewed local branch managers of record companies and stuff. And, and it, it was okay, but I learned a lot. And one of the best things she learned, she taught me was, uh, when you go and interview somebody, a musician, uh, especially if they're famous, just relax. Um, because just remind yourself that they're people too. And if they're being crabby and short, maybe they just had a bad morning or maybe they're having some personal problems or relationship problems and stuff. So try and be sympathetic to the fact that maybe it's nothing to do with you. Maybe they're just, there's just, and if you just talk to them as a normal human being and talk about the weather and talk about, you know, small talk or whatever, you find that you'll connect a lot faster. And so that's really stuck with me all the way through. So when I meet a musician, for the first time backstage or something like that, I just immediately kick in and uh, they're just normal people. And, you know, they probably just came back from being on the phone call with their ex, as far as you know. So anyway, so I understudied with her and uh, eventually that was starting to shut down. They ran out of money and uh, I graduated high school, went to college at Kent State University, which was down the road from me in Aurora, Ohio, where I grew up. And um, I was going to become a film director. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take film courses, and I wanted to move to Hollywood and become a film director and a screenwriter and stuff. So, so they had a film school there, and I started taking courses there. Then uh, they shut it down at the end of my freshman year. The one professor that they had for the film school retired, and Kent State decided to get into polymers, more tech stuff for the mid-'80s. And uh, so at the same time that was happening, I wasn't too sure what I was going to do now. Like, what am I going to do with a college degree? And I uh, befriended this dude named Jimmy who was part of, like, the Cleveland underground punk scene. Now, you have to remember, I was, like, a 80s goth. So I was into, like, Bauhaus and Sisters of Mercy and, you know. So I met my friend Jimmy. He started introducing me to, like, 
all of the really cool punk. And we just started hanging out and he would start introducing me to people around town that were in the punk scene. And the more people I talked to, the more I realized that every group was kind of at each other's throats in a way. So, you know, the new waivers that came up from the MTV that were into like Billy Idol and The Cure and stuff, which is where I started, I got into punk through that. They weren't liked by the old school punks that grew up at the Ramones and the New York Dolls and and uh, the metal dudes didn't like some of the new metal dudes at the time. And, you know, and the skateboard kids were kind of always ostracized. And it just, it was, it seemed like we all had this underground, but none of us were connecting. So there was a fanzine in town at the time, and uh, it was real small. It was basically really critical of anything new. And so I kind of felt like it was like walking into a, like a really cool indie record store where the, the owner kind of sneers down at you. Like, you don't, you like, this is, this is above you almost. And so that condescension uh, really stuck with me. And I kind of felt like, wow, like this is really kind of bullshit. And, um, so that drove me, that kind of was like another little microchip in me, um, to kind of give me some drive. So hanging out with my friend Jimmy and stuff like that, we thought, and I just was like, you know what, like we should just do a fanzine. Like we should do a fanzine and have like all of the underground stuff, regardless of what scene it is in this thing. So we did. So I was just like, you know what, look, I know how to put out a fanzine. I know how to call up a printer. I know how to get some ads. I know how to work with writers who aren't getting paid. So he was like, cool, let's do it. So I, he had some friends and I knew some friends and I said, Hey, you want to write a record review? You know, you want to do this, you want to do that. We designed it. It looked like a high school newspaper, but it had an edge to it. And that's, so we put it out, we put out a thousand copies and it was handed out at that show. And so about a week after that show, you know, I started running into kids and stuff and I worked at record revolution in Coventry at the time too. So I was at the cool hip record store, one of them. And, um, kids would come in and say, Hey, I want to write for you. Or, Hey, I'm from Pittsburgh or I, I live in Columbus. I caught that zine because I was up at that show. Like, can I write for you? And so we started getting kids who wanted to write scene reports back in that day. Right. When you used to do scene reports. And so we put out a second issue and you get Pittsburgh uh, scene report, Columbus scene report, Detroit scene report, you know? Uh, and it really became like a labor of love of all of these misfits. And to this day, that's really what it's been about. And to this day, I'm still very much driven by that not wanting to be that music store clerk, you know, wanting to give kids that bridge to the cool stuff. You know, there's been plenty of Fall Out Boy fans that have grown up reading AP that have now bridged over to cool, like even cooler stuff. Um, not saying Fall Out Boys are cool, but, uh, but like got into deeper dive stuff, got into deep cuts. And that's really been, you know, our driving force from day one is kind of be an introduction now, who was on the cover of the of that first thousand, you know, number AP number one? Who was on the cover? Um, it actually didn't really have. Uh, it was it was designed like a newspaper, so there was like a bunch of stories. The big story at the time was um, the Smiths uh, were skipping Cleveland on their next U.S. tour, and I was a huge Smiths fan, uh, and so I was really pissed off about it. And I didn't know anything about at that time booking agencies and concert promotion and how you why bands skip towns on their tours and they go to Detroit instead of Cleveland or they do Columbus instead of Detroit. I didn't know any of that. And uh, so I kind of wrote this pseudo news article slash op-ed. I got on the phone with uh, some of the, one of the guys at Belkin Productions, which is now Live Nation here. And, uh, you know, and, and he's like, you know, well, just the market isn't big enough here for that stuff and da-da-da, and, you know, and, you know, they probably just didn't want to play here. And, and I just wouldn't accept that. I was totally convinced that the big bad booking local concert promoter just quote unquote didn't get it. So 
my being naive was driving uh, my editorial at the time. And it's, it's, uh, so yeah. Um, and I've learned a lot since then. Uh, and, uh, the Smiths did come to Cleveland. It was, uh, two years later though. So it's interesting. Cause you know, I grew up at the same time you did and, and, and fanzines and, and just how, and just how you were bringing up music discovery and how music discovery was then, um, you know, like for me, it was like, you know, I was into what I was into, but then my buddy, his older brother, Right. Cause we weren't, we were still a little too young, but my buddy's older brother, he was the guy that snuck out of the house to go to like SST shows. And he was the guy that would come back and be like, you know, Hoosker <laughs> do black flag and like in, in, in these weird places, oh, yeah. you know, and, and stuff. And so he's the guy that turned us on to all this other cool stuff that we had no idea that existed, this sort of subculture of LA punk rock. Um, and, uh, but that was, that was how you did that. You know, it was like you said, you went to a record store and you, and you, you searched through stuff and you found a record cover and, and, and it was like, well, that kind of looks like it might be cool. And that was, that was music discovery then, you know, and you took a chance and, and, you know, and we had Rhino records and they, they had like, you know, they had a used section and they had a turntable in the back. So a lot of times you could, you know, take something and go and test drive it right in the back with the, on their turntable. But a lot of times, you know, you didn't, you didn't have that. You just kind of had to take a chance and like, you're throwing your five bucks up there, you know, you're throwing your allowance up there and you're taking a chance on this, you know, record cover. And it was like, you know, I mean, by and large, I think you could kind of sniff stuff out, but every once in a while it was a straight up stinker. But, but anyway, I just like the idea of what you're saying, uh, how music discovery was then and how, whenever you did find something and you were able to share with, with, with your friends, or you're able to turn someone else onto something that you found, how that was such an experience that I kind of feel, I don't know how else to explain it, but I feel bad for kids now, how they'll never have that experience. Oh, sure. And it's okay that they didn't have that experience. But, you know, college radio back then was our Spotify, right? Yep. There was one guy in town, Shattered Records. His name is Frank. And he, he, would, he would be, like, nice to you one moment, and then he was like, the biggest dick the next. And he was the guy. He was the only guy in town where he would, like, um, play records for you. You couldn't play self-play them like you did. You, you had to, like, give it to him. But he was the guy in town that had all the imports. And I mean, like, the cool imports. So you go in there, and he's like, well, this is, this is a yellow vinyl pure 12 inch uh, uh that's only released in germany and everything was oh everything was limited edition he would always say like oh there was only 200 copies made of this and i have one of them and then everything was 50 dollars. now 50 dollars in 1985 money was ridiculous <laughs> and but if but if you really wanted that 12 inch it was the only place in town you could get it it was the only place you knew on the earth you could get it he said he only had 200 there was only 200 of them. he had the, he had the number you know 200 and it was 50 bucks and i blew way too much of my record store money on that on that guy <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome okay so what would you consider your greatest achievement uh probably what i was just talking about to tell you the truth the uh, that we were a bridge we, we we turned a lot of music fans on to cool music like we were their their we've been their place to go to you know it's more competitive these days there's a lot more options you know we're we are now kind of adjusting part of our point uh, for being here. Uh, but over the past three decades, that's been our point really. It's, it's to be the, the place where you discovered stuff and we kind of validated things. Um, and, um, we helped grow a lot of bands too. You know, we were Trent's first cover back in 1991, you know, so like there's been a lot of things that we, we were Radiohead's first American cover. We were Flaming Lips first American cover. Um, 
I think that's been our biggest accomplishment. To paraphrase, sort of unifying a subculture of music, like unifying a, 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 a lifestyle of all these different types of underground subcultures, right? Is that kind of a fair way to sort of sum it up? Yep. We're, we, we've been the place for the misfits. Yeah. Uh, now, so I got to ask you this. 33 years of AP Magazine, what was your favorite cover? Oh, my favorite cover, because um, I, I had it. I don't know if I'm still having it using my icon anymore. I used to, uh, was... Um, Brad Miller's photograph of Tim Armstrong off of issue 79 back in 1996. And it was a profile shot, black and white, of Tim with a, a perfect mohawk. I think one of the reasons why I like it reminded my friend Jimmy uh, that I kind of kind of gave me the impetus to start AP. And um, it's just such a classic punk rock shot. Uh, I think that's my favorite cover of all time. Um, and, and, you know, that's so crazy because Mike, so like, I knew I was going to talk to you today. And I was thinking to myself, I know I'm going to ask him what his favorite cover is. And then I go, well, what's my favorite cover? And the first thing that stood out is that exact Tim Armstrong cover. Like, that's the, when I think of AP covers, that's the one that pops into my mind first. You know, Tim, uh, Brad, uh, I think it was either a fire. In his in his apartment, uh, or he got, or somebody got robbed. It was one or the other. But the negatives uh, were just, were lost or destroyed, and so he didn't even have the negatives for that shot. And uh, when we went back to him many years later to try and do a reprint of that uh, photo, and uh, and he gave me um, the only print that he had, I think, of that photo uh, that was still on his wall as like a uh, like a thank you and stuff like that. And I, and I I paid him for it um, regardless of that. But it's, it was really nice of him to do that. But I, I love that photo. It's so AP. Yeah. Okay. So conversely, how about one misstep that you encountered along the way that you learned from? I think, you know, and I'm still kind of, I'm going through a bit of a, uh, a life evaluation right now in my life. Um, cause I think a lot of us are to tell you the truth. Uh, I think getting a balance in your life, you know, when you start something, your own person, you throw everything into it and you kind of hear your older, you hear at the time you hear your grandparents and then it ends up being your parents after your grandparents die. And everybody's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta slow down. You got to make sure you go live life. You got to go, you know, you got to have some balance. You know, you're working all the time, so for so on. And it, and you kind of just go, yeah, 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 um, because you're so, your passion drives so deep. And it's difficult when you do that to know when to shut off. And you force yourself into times where you, where you take care of yourself or you go on vacations or something like that, or you, you don't, you know, make an excuse why you can't go cross country to go to a wedding or something like that. Um, because it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to get to that point. And uh, I think that's probably been on a professional and personal misstep more than anything is just too many times I chose to just keep pushing forward um, because instead of taking a moment to slow down and maybe take care of, of my internal needs uh, and wishes and things like that as well, you know, it's kind of hit that point where I'm allowed to live. And that's a very, that's been a very difficult thing for me to kind of stop and be able to look in the mirror and say to myself and actually believe it. What is your best piece of advice for someone who is working towards a career in the music business? Uh, it's tattooed in my arms. Never give up. If you really believe in something, you got to adapt. You may have to adapt, right? So you have to be kind of like a master of everything now. And that would be my best advice is don't just learn one thing. 
learn many things because the opportunities will come to you will be more because you'll be more valuable to a manager or a label or a band or whatever. If you're somebody that's like, oh, you know, like we only have enough money to take one crew person out and you can do all two jobs or three jobs. All right, cool. We'll pay you a little bit more money and come on out. And then you build a relationship with that artist. And before you know it, you're there five years later with them. And, you know, you're, you're playing Madison Square Garden, hopefully. I'd like to point out, too, that, you know, when you started AP 33 years ago, it wasn't like it wasn't like you you pulled up, you know, you opened your laptop and, and you Googled in YouTube, like how to start a fanzine. Like, you know, or, or you know, how, how to start a fanzine YouTube tutorial didn't exist, right? right? So it's like, how much stock do you put in passion? Because I kind of believe it's like your passion for what you saw with your experiences, that's what led you to doing what you did, right? Like you, you, you followed your dreams and you followed your passion and you put that behind AP, right? And and it's like, you know, it's one thing learning so that you can have a job, right? But it's also another thing to go like, you know, people like people like you as entrepreneurs, you know, like I said, putting putting some stock into the passion behind what it is that you want to do, you know, as much as maybe you want to work for a magazine, maybe think about starting a magazine, right? Right. You need to have that passion because the passion will drive the interest and the curiosity. You know, we, you and I, you know, we do it. We have so many friends of ours that are in the industry who listen to business podcasts and they read books and, you know, and they, and they watch YouTube videos or entrepreneurs and stuff talk about, you know, things that they've gone through. We're all fans of Ted talks stuff. And so number one is passion. What is your unique strength? Uh, I feel like I'm tend to be a good read a character. And I, and also I think I've, I've got a good sense of understanding and re- seeing talent when I see it. I think that's my, probably my unique strength, you know, and I, I'm also good with the big picture on things. I can, AP's been, um, we've been changing a lot over the past two years and, uh, our business model and how we produce a, a magazine or run a media company. And we've actually been ahead of a lot of media companies, especially on the print side of things and how we changed our whole publication around our business model. And, um, our distributors and our printers were always saying like, you guys are always ahead of everybody by like a year, year to two years and what you're doing. Cause then everybody follows. And, uh, because, uh, so I, I think we're, we're good at being a pioneer as well. I said, that's another strength. What are you most fired up about right now? I would think that I'm what most fired up about now is the, uh, that there are, that there's, there's countless opportunities that, that you can take advantage of as a business owner now, um, especially as a media company. Um, and so I like the challenge. It's better than kind of doing the same thing all the time and, you know, oh, put the magazine in stores and you wait for returns and you sell your ads and you go to this conference, you go to that conference and so forth, so and so on. And uh, so I like the fact that it's it's really different now. And and so that business model that we had before, which is which was starting to get really redundant and boring, uh, is now completely different. What is your one prediction for the future of the music business? Um, I think there's I think I would say this. Um Things are going to get, there's going to be uh, a return to some gatekeepers again. I just think that there's so many opportunities to discover stuff um, and that, but that human beings are naturally want to keep things simple. Uh, and you see this in media where a lot of the biggest sites online are actually just aggregators of content. They pull in content from all over the place. And, and so I think the same thing for music. Um, and I think that uh, at the same time, a lot of smaller bands, uh, a lot of smaller artists, I should say, 
I don't think the model's there completely yet, but there will be some model of some sort uh, that will get overhauled within time uh, so that it's not just the large bands that are making money uh, through streaming, but the smaller bands can start making some money too. I just saw something the other day that um, there's a, uh, a process that's being worked on right now that will uh, a listening thing or something that uh, ASCAP and all these guys would put in bars and stuff. And so it would just, it would be like a, like, it would be like Shazam for uh, a licensing or royalty collection. So you, if a, if a bar plays music, uh, over the loudspeaker, uh, this device would catch every single song on that, and then that would be determined what your 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 fee would be as the bar on an annual basis. Like, and it would, but it would catch each one of the songs. So now each one of these songs is being caught, uh, and so now more people can get paid. So I, I think that just it's so different right now, and uh, and it keeps changing all the time. But I think that you're you're going to see. People wanted to gravitate towards uh, more places, fewer places where they can discover music. And also at the same time, I think younger, uh, newer bands, there's going to be a model that will come up where they're going to start being able to get paid as well. Speaking of, of newer bands, so, you know, put on your gatekeeper hat for a minute. And like in terms of a guy that curates alternative press, what qualities do you look for in a new artist? Um, there's two different types. Personally, I like bands that kick you in the teeth. Um, it really kind of like, musically, uh, visually, uh, they kick you in the teeth, and they really. Um, but that goes back to my, you know, my earlier punk world. Um, the other one that uh, is important is if you're a personality, uh, and I don't mean the sense of like you're a celebrity. I mean the sense that like you have a personality. You know, there are artists that. Um, like Austin Knight of Waterparks. Now we talk a lot about him, and so does Rock Sound. Uh, to the point where some people are like, "Oh my God, this is I'm sick of this." Them talking about this guy, and um, but the thing is, he's got a personality, and he's got a character, and the, his base love it, and he stands out, and he is, um, uh, and, and he's got something about him that that makes you want to watch him once he walks in the room. Andy's like that. Andy Beersack's like that. He's got a personality. He's got something about him that when he walks on a stage or walks in a room, you know, he could be dressed like a bum and, and walk into a room and people would still look at him um, because there's just something about them. And uh, so I think that that's the second thing I watch is to see if you have this aura about you as a person. You know, because that's that that means that fans are going to gravitate towards you, and and as a media company, you want to follow people like that as well. Um, what would be a new level for you? Um, I think we're going into it. I think we're. I mean, we've we've been turning into kind of like a boutique fanzine, which is kind of a very better produced version of what we started out being. So it's very visual. It's very photographic. Uh, it's got a kind of a lifestyle vibe to it now, um, because there's not a lot of uh, music fans that want to read about stuff because they feel like they already know everything about a band. So the old days of band features that all of us music magazines used to do are gone. You can't do them because. The, the, the artist every day of the moment, every day of the week is posting about that they're in the studio. <laughs> and, and in some cases they're on Snapchat, they're playing, you know, five seconds of a, of a sample of a new song or something. And so you can't compete with that. So, but there is a lot of things that fans still want and they still want to experience the life uh, of an artist, but they, but, but they also still have their little tribe you know, I mean, music is made up of tribes, uh, and you even see this in movies. You know, sci-fi fans are in tribes, um, and so 
uh, for us, I think it's about really catering to our tribe and making it even more of a cooler collectible experience. Um, and then utilizing our social media and digital and video to kind of communicate a lot of stories that we used to communicate in uh, features. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on. I have my last question that is the most important question. Okay. Living or dead, who are the members of your ultimate super group? Oh, wow. Um, uh, being a metal dude, don't look down on me. Uh, I would goth out and uh, I would probably get, uh, I would do members. I would do members of Bauhaus, members of Cocteau Twins, members of Dead Can Dance, uh, members of uh, Robert Smith, uh, Susie Sue. Uh, I would pull in Blix of Bargeld just for effect and uh, uh, New Order when they're not being crabby. And, uh, and then put, put them, put them, Bernie can be crabby, uh, and put them all in the, in the, in that kind of a group and let them, uh, let them go at it. And that would be super cool, especially with the, uh, medieval sounds of, uh, Dead Can Dance and Brendan Perry and, and, uh, and, and then also pulling Elizabeth Fraser's Cocteau Twins, uh, vocals and, uh, Robin Guthrie and all that. Uh, it would be super, super cool. I'd be in heaven. Intense, man. Intense. Well, uh, <laughs> Mike, thanks for uh, coming on once again. I super appreciate it. Thank you. This was awesome. Where can uh, people uh, find you on the social medias? And is there a way for bands to submit for consideration in AP? Like, is, is, there, is there a destination for that? Yep. So um, just uh, send us uh, your um, links don't send us mp3 files uh to editorial at altpress.com a-l-t-p-r-e-s-s.com my socials are are uh, m-i-k-e-s-h-e-a-a-p uh and it's pretty simple uh and so uh you can find me pretty much on all of the platforms at that method awesome mike shea ap uh thanks mike uh appreciate it dude uh, this was awesome thanks thanks so much man A New Level Podcast is brought to you by Musicians Institute. Headphones provided by Monster Products. Editing and music by Blake Bunzel. Logo design by Mango Beard. I produced this show with my managemental co-host from the other coast, Mr. Mike Mowry for Jabberjaw Media. Email me questions or comments at askblasco at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! 
This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.